I'm hearing bells. That's not a good sign. Uh, let me, this introduction will be different. Raise your hand if you were here last night. Then Todd doesn't need an introduction. Uh, but I'm going to introduce him anyway. He's from Tennessee originally. Uh, one of the things I really want to stress about him is he, uh, he's what, he's a product of pre, uh, preacher training schools. Here's a man that was in secular work for a while and decided, I need to preach. I want to preach. I got to preach. And he went to Memphis School of Preaching, graduate 209, is that right, 2009? Yes, sir. And uh, been preaching in several different places, been in the last place now 10 years. Uh, if you've heard him preach, uh, you, you know he doesn't need an introduction. I would simply say he's a gospel preacher. And he knows how to preach. I thought last year's lesson was the outstanding lesson of the, of the, the lecture. And last night was simple. So we're in for a treat. Come preach to us. God came. Brother Wayne, I don't know that I can thank you enough for those kind words, especially those words coming from you. This is a, this is a gentleman who, when my sister got married in Tennessee, uh, he knew her from out here and he was able to travel to Tennessee for the wedding. He wasn't conducting it, I was. But he was there for the wedding just showing encouragement and support and that, that meant a lot to our family. It truly did. We think the world of you, sir. And we think the world of Bear Valley, the Bible Institute here, the congregation here. Of course, we have family out here and we're grateful for that. We've met many products of the school and we're thankful for that. Um, there are all kind of angels getting their wings right now. It is a wonderful life, isn't it? There was a long, long time ago a God whose voice the prophets heard. He is the God that we should know who speaks from His inspired Word. Question, is the voice the prophets heard the voice that we preach today? Is the God that we should know the God that Christians know today? And is that relationship based on God's inspired word? Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. God appealed to a wayward nation. He appealed to their heads. Let us reason together, he said. But he also appealed to their hearts. Come together. Let us reason together. There's a relationship involved. He appealed to reason. He appealed to relationship. Reason and relationship are not mutually exclusive. In fact, a deficiency of one implies a deficiency in the other. They go hand in hand. Now, Isaiah prophesied to a nation that was sick. Isaiah 1.5, the whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. Isaiah 1.6, from, from the sole of the foot to the crown of the head, there's no soundness, no health in it. Now, the outward symptoms were obvious. Rebellion, sin, uh, evil, corruption, forsaking God, angering God, estrangement from God. But the real problem was the head and the heart. Isaiah 1.3, the ox knoweth his owner and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider. God's people had forgotten their God. Now, this is on the track for preachers. So let me ask the preachers among us, how many of us want that description of Isaiah 1 to be the description of the brethren with whom we're blessed to work? They, they don't know God. Three ideas to keep in mind. You are what you eat. You preach what you know. And you serve the God you know. 
First, you are what you eat. Now, this is true of individuals. It's true of groups. If a community or a nation eats an unbalanced diet for an extended period of time, it will show in their health. Take America. A prolonged excess of carbohydrates or deficiencies and uh, proteins, excess in fats. What happens? Obesity, diabetes, hypoglycemia, heart disease, food allergies, various, uh, even psychological instability can result from an unbalanced diet. In short, an unbalanced diet is unhealthy. Now let's apply that to the church. When a congregation gathers to, to eat, when, when the flock comes together to feed on the Word and they are fed a lopsided diet as it pertains to the church, as it pertains to worship, as it pertains to Christian living, as it pertains to God Himself, that congregation is going to be sick. 1 Peter 2, 2, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. We feed on God's Word. Acts twenty twenty eight. Elders are tasked with feeding the flock, but typically elders entrust a preacher to lay out that menu, so to speak. 2 Timothy 4, 2, Paul told Timothy, you preach the Word. Preachers, an unbalanced preacher will feed an unhealthy diet to an unhealthy flock. We don't want that to be us, now do we? Yes, each individual Christian has the responsibility of searching the Scriptures, whether those things are so. We understand this. But let me ask you, if the congregation is growing in faith, do we want that to be because of our influence in teaching or in spite of it? You are what you eat, and you preach what you know. This is true of facts, it's true of doctrine, it's true of God. Who is God? Now that question, asked at the beginning of a Bible study, will let you get a good idea of what the student's perspective is of God. Typically, a person will say, well, God's all-powerful, He's all-knowing, He's, He's gracious. And those things are true, but have you ever noticed that when someone just gives you descriptive traits of an individual to identify the person, that's usually indicative of a shallow, limited, superficial familiarity. For instance, you ask me, Scott, who's John Elway? Well, I'll say he's a former quarterback for the Denver Broncos. He's their current general manager. He has car dealerships. From what I can see on TV, he looks like a nice guy. I know about John Elway, but I don't know John Elway. Now, you ask someone who knows him, the response will come back, well, he's my neighbor. or he, He's my cousin. He's my one of the first aspects described is going to be the personal relationship. Who's God? How many preachers answer that question with, He's my Lord. He's my Master. He's my Father. He's my friend. How many answer that question with a rote list of hard descriptions intended to invoke fear and only fear? How many answer that question with a soft lift, uh, list of warm descriptions that simply make us feel warm and fuzzy. He's love and gracious and love and kindness and love and long-suffering and love. And Did I mention love? How many answer that question by exalting God for His power and His might and His wisdom? And they sound just like Job's friends. And what is true of Job's friends is true of them as well because God said, Job 42, 7, You've not spoken that which is right of me as my servant Job had. They knew about God, but they did not know God. Question, what happens when a congregation's meal plan is provided by an individual who knows about God, but he doesn't know God? I don't want that to be me. You are what you eat. You preach what you know. 
Preachers, what happens if we get God wrong? And you serve the God you know. The God I know doesn't act like that. Ever heard someone say that? And usually it's a person objecting to what the Bible says about hell or the one church or God's authorized manner of worship, the, the plan of salvation, whatever the doctrine may be. And there's a truth in the statement. The God I know doesn't act like that. The, the person doesn't know God. Because when the God I know is based upon my feelings and my desires, my intuition or the traditions that I prefer, then the God I know is not the God of the Bible. The God I know is not consistent with Scripture because the God I know is not Scripture's God. I don't want that to be me. If the God I know is the God of the Bible, then I'm going to let His Word determine who He is. Jeremiah said, Lord, I know the way of man is not in him. It's not a man that walks to direct the steps, Jeremiah 10, 23. God came back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 16, 20. He said, will people make gods for themselves of them that are no gods? Are people going to devise their own gods? Verse 21 of that chapter, God said, I'll show them, make them to know my name is the Lord. As with Jeremiah, so today, when people devise their own paths, design their own gods, they do not know God. And understand, people serve the God they know. Now, this is true concerning thou shalt and thou shalt nots. It's also true concerning our perception of God's personality. If I have the idea that God just wants me to be happy, my life is going to be rampant with sin. If I have the idea that God is just too hard, to, it's impossible to please Him, then I may try for a while, but eventually I'm going to get frustrated and fearful, and I may even stop trying to please Him. And then we think about what Jesus had to say. There was a master who entrusted three of His servants with, with His possessions based upon their several ability, Matthew 25. Two of them took their skill and their Lord's investment and doubled the Lord's investment. And their master said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. He showed his reasonableness, his graciousness, his kindness in the reward that he gave them. But then there was one that did nothing. He put no effort into it. Instead, he hid his Lord's money in the ground. And he said that he did that because he knew his master was a hard man and he was afraid. He allowed his misperception because his master was kind and generous, reasonable. But he allowed his misperception of his master's being hard to create a fear that crippled his service. Preachers, how many of us preach God is hard to please? How many of the brethren where we preach are crippled by a, a mentality that God is hard to please? How many of them do nothing? Not because they don't want to do anything. Not because they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. But because they're afraid of making God mad by messing up. Reason and relationship. We have to strike that balance. Now, of course, every preacher, we all know God, right? Just ask us. We've got this thing figured out. Let's take a step back. Let's examine God's Word for who He is. And let's make sure we're getting our perception of God from the proper source and from His description. Now, when God invited souls to reason with Him, Isaiah 1, the emphasis was repeatedly given to heed what He had said. Isaiah 1-2, Give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. Isaiah 1-10, Hear the word of the Lord. Give ear to the law of our God. Isaiah 1-17, Learn of Him. Let's go to hear and hear what he has to say. 
Reason and relationship. Come now, let's reason together about this relationship with God. The first thing we need to to note is simply this. A balanced relationship with God, first and foremost, starts with God's Scriptures. Paul said, What man knows the things of man, but the spirit of man that's in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. We, we understand this. No man can read another person's mind. Thus, we can't read God's mind. Now, yes, there are those that have been married for years, but even they can't read each other's minds. She might know that he prefers lemon with his tea, but that's not telepathy. That's long-standing habit. To read a mind is far different. And the only way that I can know what is going on in the mind of anyone else is for that person to reveal it to me by his words or by his actions. Thus it is with God. The only way to know God's mind is based on what he has revealed. Paul said we have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. God has revealed his mind to his apostles and prophets by his spirit, 1 Corinthians 2.10. For the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. And what God has revealed to inspired men, he has recorded for us uninspired folk. 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now, we have received not the wisdom which is of the world, but the wisdom which is of God, that we might know the things freely given us of God, which things we speak. Not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual God's inspired men penned and preached God's inspired words so that we can have them. Thus, we have God's mind revealed for us and we can understand it. Ephesians 3, 4, when you read, you shall understand my knowledge and the mysteries of Christ. We can understand God's mind by what he has given to us. Now, it sounds like a pious statement. Well, God's so high, I just, I really can't know God's mind. And in so much as I can't know what God has not revealed, that's true. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, Deuteronomy 29, 29. But what He's revealed belongs to us. And when God has given book, chapter, verse, Bible to show us His expectations, for us to say we really can't know God's mind is just a dodge to get out of what God has said. We don't have to read His mind. We just need to read His book. Amen. Now... To use preachers and pastors and parents and popes and pals and peers as my source of doctrine is going to result in secondhand faith. To use my emotions is going to result in a hooked on a feeling type faith. I wouldn't trade this feeling in my heart for a stack of Bibles this high, they say. I'll trade every feeling I've ever had for God's word of truth. Amen. I don't want a second-hand faith. I don't want a faith based solely on emotion. I want faith based on God's Word. But we live in a world where the Bible has become next to nothing. Don't believe that? Consider this. Most adults claim that they are deeply spiritual in the United States. But only 14% have opened their Bible each day over the course of the last week. In America's most Bible-minded city, Chattanooga, Tennessee... Only 50% in the most Bible-minded city have opened their Bibles at least once over the course of the last week. The Bible has become so peripheral that the God that people know is not the God that they should know because they've not spent enough time getting to know Him. And it's true in the world, Christians, we have to ask, how true is that of members of the Lord's church? How are we going to know Him if we're not in the Word He's revealed to us? 
Now, we need to be careful about the way we approach God's Word. I'm not approaching it just for, for trivia information. Bible trivia is great when it helps me learn Bible facts, but not when it makes the Bible trivial. So let's make sure that when we approach the Word, I, I, I'm opening it not just to learn about the doctrine, but the God behind the doctrine. I'm, I'm approaching it to learn who my God is. A relationship with God starts with God's Scriptures. Relationship without reason yields a subjective faith. Ignorance, idolatry, false spirituality. Reason without relationship yields a cold faith. One of checklists, one of rituals, one of mere academics. Let's avoid misunderstandings and preconceived notions. Let's also avoid mere lists of descriptive terms. Let's get to know God based on His description of Himself, which leads to our next thought. A balanced relationship with God starts with God's Scriptures. It delights in God's description. Who is God? How does God describe Himself? Exodus 32. Israel had sinned. Moses had interceded. God had relented. Exodus 33. God told Moses, I'll send my angel before you, but I'm not leading this stiff-necked bunch of people. And Moses begins to plead again. He tells God, Exodus 33, 12, You've said you know me by name, and I found grace in your sight. God, you've said that you know me. But notice what he says in Exodus 33, 13. Now I pray thee, he says, if I found grace in thy sight, show me thy way that I may know thee. God, you know me, but I don't know you. Show me your way so that I can know you. Now God tells Moses, I'll lead the way. I won't just send my angel. I will lead the way. Moses continues to plead. Exodus 33, 19, show me thy glory. Let's hit the pause button and think about something right here. Moses is now 80 years old. At the age of 40, he already knew God's promise to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt, according to Acts chapter 7. Now he's at the age of 80. He knows God's voice because he's heard it on Sinai. He knows God's name because God gave it to him. He knows God's power because he saw the ten plagues. He saw the Red Sea divided. He's seen the lightnings, heard the thunderings, and felt the thick cloud at the top of Sinai. In God's presence for 40 days, Moses knew God's promises, God's power, God's presence. He even knew God's plan. What he didn't know was God's personality. And that's what he sought to know. That I may know thee, he says. God arranged an introduction. What's interesting is that we're told that God spoke with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend, Exodus 33.10. But even at that, Moses wanted to know God better. God tells Moses, verses 20 through 23, there's a place by me in the rock. You can't see my face and live, but you come up, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll put my hand over you, and as I pass by, I'll remove my hand. You can see my hinder parts. No man can see my face and live. When Moses went up to the rock, when God passed by, when the glory of God declared who God was, the name of the Lord, as God said He would do, Exodus 33, what was declared? Exodus 34, Picking up at verse 6, did God declare His justice in wake of Israel's idolatry? Did He declare His, His power and His might? Did He depict Himself as love and mercy and love and goodness and love and justice and love? Let's let God describe Himself. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 6, The Lord passed by before Him and proclaimed the Lord. 
the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin and will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers unto the children and to the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Moses now knew God. God had given an autobiographical sketch of who he was and he didn't emphasize his might or his strength. He didn't emphasize his omniscience or his omnipotence. What did God emphasize about himself? Moses begged to see God's glory and God showed his glory by describing how he treats man. Don't miss that. Moses has come to know God's glory, God's goodness, God's very personality based on how God treats man. Merciful, he's compassionate. Merciful and gracious. The idea of stooping to show kindness to an inferior. God is gracious, he shows favor. Merciful, gracious, and long-suffering, slow and patient before breathing in passion or anger. Not easily exasperated. Full, abundant in goodness and truth. Goodness, loving kindness, truth, faithfulness. Not only does God possess kindness and fidelity, He's filled to the brim with it. Keeping mercy for thousands. Mercy, the same word connected to merciful above, but not just merciful, keeping mercy, protecting, preserving mercy for thousands. Forgiving iniquity. That would be uh, not just wayward living, but the idea of perverse living. Transgressions, revolts. Sin, stumbling. He forgives it in all its levels. Willing to forgive perverseness, but not willing to forgive the guilty who perpetuate their sin. Who continue in their iniquity and won't abandon it. Who is God? He's the one that He described in Exodus 34. Now, what's interesting is if we back up to Exodus 20 and we think about the Ten Commandments as God gave not just to Moses, but those were given for all the people to hear. Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5, God had said, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, to false images. Nor shalt, uh, For I am the Lord thy God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers. Wait a minute, Moses had heard this before, hadn't he? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers unto the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Did you catch that? God had already given an idea of His personality in His law. When I know this, I can know Him. The Old Testament bursts with examples recalling God's self-description. I fear we miss these too often. Think about the number of times God's description of Himself is used by God's people in pleading and how it impacted them. We begin with Moses. Numbers chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. God was going to destroy the people. Moses pleaded on behalf of the people after their rebellion refusing to go up into the land. He says, Now I beseech thee, let the power of God be great according as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. God, be merciful because that's who you are. Then we look at what the psalmist had to say. Psalm 86, 15. He found a reason for comfort. Thou art a God full of compassion, gracious, long-suffering, 
plenteous in mercy and truth. Then Psalm 103, verses 7 through 9, the psalmist found reason for gratitude over God's character. Remembering how God had uh, dealt with the people of Israel, he says, God made known his ways to Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. Then there's Psalm 145, 8. This psalmist was motivated to praise when he had to say concerning God, He's gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. Then there's Joel. Joel was motivated to bring the people to repentance. Verse uh, Joel 2.13, Rend your heart, he said, not your garments. Turn unto the Lord, for He's gracious, He's merciful, He's slow to anger, and of great kindness. Anyone see a pattern in these descriptions? They knew who God was based on what God had said about Himself. Hosea is no different. Hosea 4.1 Because there's no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. They don't know who God is and so they're not following in His truth, fidelity. His mercy, loving kindness. They don't know Him. Thus He says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Hosea 4.6 Then there are the words of Jonah who was angry because he just knew God would save Nineveh if they repented. And lo and behold, they repented. God relented. And Jonah fumed. This is what I said when I was in my own country, he says. I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow of anger and of great kindness. I knew who you were and I didn't want them to benefit from it. Then there's Nahum who wrote the book Jonah wanted to write concerning Nineveh's destruction a hundred years later. And as he speaks of Nineveh's impending doom, Nahum 1.3, he says, The Lord's slow to anger. He's great in power, and He will not at all acquit the wicked. The Ninevites had enjoyed God's patience, and now it was time for them to know that the Lord has His way in the whirlwind and the storm. He declared who God was. Then there's Hezekiah, Second Chronicles chapter 30, who called the remainder of the people who hadn't been taken into captivity to come to Jerusalem and worship. And he tells them, if you turn again unto the Lord, your brethren and your children will find compassion before them that led them captive. So they shall come again into this land, for the Lord your God is gracious, merciful, will not turn away His face from you if you return unto Him. Again, a declaration of who God is. It continues in Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah uh, clinging to God's identity in the face of confusion. God, You're the one that shows loving kindness unto thousands. You're the one that recompenses the iniquity of the fathers to the bosom of the children. Then there's Nehemiah. After they built the wall and they celebrated, they declared that God had not forsaken them because God is ready to pardon, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. They said what they said because of who God was. God's personality is unaltered. I'm the Lord, I change not, Micah 3.6. Just as Moses found confidence, the psalmist found comfort and gratitude and reason for praise. Just as Joel found motivation to repent, Hosea found motivation to follow God's example. Jonah saw hope for repentance, even though he didn't want them to repent. Just as Nahum saw damnation for the impenitent and Hezekiah saw a summons to worship. Just as Jeremiah saw stability and confusion and Nehemiah saw a reminder of God's readiness to receive even the most rebellious, we too can glean truths from God, that will change our lives. Not because of who we are, but this was all because of who He is. He introduced Himself to them. Now, 
if the saved describe God this way today, if we speak as oracles of God and stand up describing God the way He described Himself, what's going to happen? If I stand before you and say God is merciful and gracious and long-suffering, abundant goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, somebody's going to stand up and say, oh man, here we go again. One of those love and mercy preachers. Just love, 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 love. Now, if God's own self-description mentioned His justice last, why is it that so many saints today want to make it first lest they be labeled liberal? Could it be that we've let the tail wag the dog We've run past Jerusalem fleeing from Rome. If God's description of Himself seems unbalanced, who's off kilter, man or God? Yes, there's judgment with God. Yes, it's severe. Yes, we need to know Him. We need to know that perpetual sin will not have mercy, but there's also no condemnation to them that are in Christ who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. If we today would see God the way He sees Himself, if we would view God the way He described Himself, hearing the voice the prophets heard, we would find the same confidence, comfort, gratitude, reason for praise, motivation to repentance, model to follow that they found. We study the Bible, not because if we don't, God's going to get us, but because if we don't, we won't get God. We won't understand who He is. Knowing who God is, the next question becomes, what does He desire? We know this balanced relationship delights in His description and all these benefits, but now a balanced relationship lives in His love. What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. He wasn't telling them anything they didn't already know. Luke chapter 10, one had already come to Him and asked, How do I inherit eternal life? Jesus said, How do you read the law? The man said, Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul. He was a Pharisee. In this account, Matthew twenty two thirty seven, when Jesus said, Love the Lord thy God, based on the greatest commandment, the reply comes back according to Mark's record, Mark twelve thirty two. Well, Master, thou hast said the truth. They knew that love the Lord thy God was the key to, to heeding God's word. This was what Moses had taught repeatedly. We think about what Moses said in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 10, 12-13. What doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in His ways, to love the Lord thy God, to serve Him and to keep His commandments? Deuteronomy 11.1, 1, love the Lord thy God and keep His charge. Deuteronomy 11.3, love the Lord and serve Him. Deuteronomy 11.22, keep all these commandments and love Him. Again, do we see a pattern? Sound anything like what Jesus said, John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, indeed, if we do, we will. Now, we think about what Jesus faced in his life. Knowing is only half the battle. Knowing the greatest commandment was to love God, the Pharisees meticulously tithed mint, cumin, and anise, yet they omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, Faith. They passed over the love of God, Luke eleven two. They missed who God was, His judgment, His mercy, His fidelity. They passed over His love. Their academic cognizance of God was stuck at checklist traditionalism. Christians, are we stepping on toes yet? Preachers, is this getting uncomfortable yet? The Pharisees had omitted judgment and mercy and faith. They, they, the very things that would serve to answer their question, what's the greatest commandment? Because when Jesus uh, spoke of what they had omitted, he, he quoted Micah 6, 
He showed the old man what's good. What did the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly before God? Those are the very things they had omitted. Micah's words sound strikingly similar to Moses. What does God require but to love him and to walk in his ways? Their reason had not translated into a relationship that reflected itself in their lives. Their reason had simply become rule book religion. That gave rise to the various criticisms of Jesus. Well, you don't keep the Sabbath. Your apostles are picking handfuls of grain, Matthew 12. Or you eat with publicans and sinners, Matthew 9. And Jesus answered both of these with the same idea. If you knew what this meant, Matthew 9, you need to go and learn what this means, Matthew 12. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. What's that? Jesus quoted Hosea 6, 6. I'll have mercy and not sacrifice. Knowledge of God more than burnt offering. God wanted them to know Him. These didn't. They were stuck at checklist traditionalism. If they'd known God, then they would have followed in His mercy. They would have followed in the knowledge of Him. They needed to go and learn what mercy meant because they didn't know God. Now, God desires spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. God desires love and obedience, John 14, 15. God desires relationship and reason. Without sincerely loving relationship, then man's reason simply becomes checklist Christianity. It becomes only as confident in his ability to maintain his spiritual checklist. As we discussed last night, those that are always worried about whether or not they're saved because they've not checked every box... We need to heed His Word. What He says, I desire to do. But when we omit the relationship involved, we omit just how good God is. Without true obedience that's found in reason, a man's trust in relationship turns into an idle caricature of God, just emphasizing those those warm traits we like. Paul had something to say about the Pharisees, of which he had been one, and the Jews as a whole. Romans 10 Two, I bear them record. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal for Him, but they don't know Him. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. They've gone about to establish their own righteousness. They've not submitted to the righteousness of God. Christians, how often is that the case with us? When we prioritize our fervor for God over methodical study of His Word, when we establish our own righteousness with a religion of checklists, how often do we have a zeal for God, but not according to knowing Him? A balanced relationship starts with God's Scriptures. It delights in God's description. It lives, 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 obeys, lives in God's love. And finally, a balanced relationship transforms to God's thinking. A right relationship with God grows to the point that a person learns to think God's thoughts and God's ways become his ways. He thinks God's thoughts. He lives God's ways. No, comes the shout. We can't think like God. His ways can't be, our ways can't be his ways. That's impossible. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. I know that the Bible says it somewhere. Okay, let's consider a sampling of scripture. Romans 12, 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye might prove, that is, know by experience, having done it and come to learn it, and it becomes second nature, that ye might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
Paul makes the point that when we live his ways, they become ours. And we can know by experience that good, perfect, acceptable will of God. Or we think about the words of the Hebrews writer. Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 12. When for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need one teach you again what be the first principles of the oracles of God. You become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. You ought to know more than you do. He that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. He's a babe, but strong meat belongs unto them that are full age, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. I know Peter said, desire the sincere milk of the word. Peter told Christians, all Christians, with the desire of newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word. He wasn't saying because you are newborn babes and just speaking to new converts. He was speaking to some that have been Christians for upwards of 30 years. Peter speaks of the milk of the word, but the Hebrews writer speaks of milk and meat. And here we go talking about, well, here's a milk passage, here's a meat passage. Can, can we stop doing that? Because if we look at what the Hebrews writer said, the difference between milk and meat has nothing to do with the difficulty of the passage. It has everything to do with the chewer, not with what's chewed. He that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. He doesn't know how to use the book. Strong meat belongs unto them that are of full age. By reason of use, they have their senses exercised. They've cut their teeth. They have their senses exercised. They've used it. They've lived it. They not only learn what the book says, but they've lived it. They've applied it. And it's become second nature to them. By reason of use, they have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Again, God's ways have become their ways. They get meat out of the simplest passage because they've come to know their God better. Whereas others can only get milk out of the simplest passages because they've not spent the time in the Word. Now, their lives are transformed because their minds are renewed. Their ways become God's ways. But again, here come the the statement, no, God's ways can't be our ways. His thoughts can't be our thoughts. Okay, let's just go to the problem text. Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him. While he is near, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord, for he will have mercy upon him, and unto our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let's just hit the pause button right here. What's said in Isaiah 55 emphasizes the very nature of God that God declared to Moses all those centuries before. Abundantly pardon, forgiving He will show mercy upon him. He's merciful. Isaiah recalled exactly who God was when he said what he said and called the wicked and the unrighteous back to God. And then he says, after telling the wicked to forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts, Isaiah 55, 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, said the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. This same rebellious nation that was called to reason with God, is Isaiah pleads with them, repent, so God will have mercy, He will abundantly pardon. Forsake your ways, forsake your thoughts, because they're not God's, and they should be. Isaiah is not saying we can't think like God. Quite the opposite. He's saying we should. We must. Well, now how does that happen? How do we come to think like God, make His ways our ways, His thoughts our thoughts? The answer is given right here in the same text. Just like God sends rain from heaven to water and nourish the earth and replenish us, Isaiah 55, 11, 
so shall my word be which goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that wherein I please. It shall profit that which I sent it to do. God sent His Word to make His ways our ways, to make His thoughts our thoughts so that we could follow Him. Now, that's a glorious purpose. He has given us His Word so that we can have a balanced relationship with Him. Christians, we need to be careful of something. There was a congregation who had all the, the sound teaching that you could imagine. Paul had worked as a local preacher there. Timothy had been there. Apollos, Aquila, Priscilla, and apparently even John the Apostle had been there before he was imprisoned at Patmos, or at least it seems likely. And here they are, Revelation chapter 2, and Jesus says to them, I know your works and your labor and your patience. How you have you can't bear them that are evil. You've tried them which say they're apostles and are not. You found them liars. You've borne. You've labored. You've had patience for my name's sake. You've not fainted. But I have somewhat against thee because you've left your first love. The church at Ephesus had every bit of reason. They knew reason. They knew the truth. They held to it. But they let go of their relationship. They left their first love. Jesus called them to repent. How many Christians need to do that today? Reason and relationship. Striking the balance. Preachers, we can only preach what we know. One of the most fulfilling aspects of ministry is helping a family mourn over the loss of a loved one. But one of the saddest parts of a memorial service is often the eulogy. Because I've sat through some where the preacher speaks five minutes about the lifetime of the one who's departed, and then he gives a 20-minute rehashed sermon that he could have used for a baby or an octogenarian. Families deserve better. However, when he'll take the time to interview the family and friends and get to know the person that's departed. Get to, get to know the per people who knew that person best. When he takes the time to weep with them that weep, when he takes that family by the hand and leads them through sorrow, then he can stand before them and truly talk about the person that's not with them anymore. Do it right, and after every eulogy, a close family member is going to come up and say, I learned something today. Do it wrong. And the folks will leave and say, Thank you, preacher. Good sermon. Now let's apply that to the pulpit. The same is true in preaching God. The preacher preaches the God he knows, and the less we know about God, the less we're able to let God's family know about Him. God's family deserves better. And when we take the time to get to know God, then every Sunday, those who even know Him best will come by and say, I learned something today, but do it wrong. Thank you, preacher. Good sermon. Preachers, let's help the brethren know that they can know God. Help them know that they can live up to Jesus' desires. Let's stop preaching the God of the checklist. Let's stop preaching the God of the teddy bear. Let's preach the God of the Bible. Let's preach the Word. You are what you eat. You teach what you know and you serve the God you know. Learn who God is. Don't just learn doctrinal truth, but learn the God behind the doctrine. Adopt His ways. Pursue His thoughts. Become like Him. Preach Him in all His fullness. And watch the flock grow as a result. At all times, focus on the shepherd. Have that balanced relationship and glorify God in the process. Thank you for your time today. Amen. Thank you for the effort.
and time that you spent and the fact that you know God. That's evident. We also appreciate very much uh, his family, Melissa, and their three boys being with us. Uh, appreciate uh, them coming and being with us in this time of uh, lectureship. And I'm sure that uh, we've learned something. Balance is usually always the right way. And balance with regard to God is surely right. Balance with relationship and reason. Uh, you know, I usually tell the students here, you got to spend time in the book to know enough to say something, but you also have to spend time enough with people to be able to minister to them. Thank you so much, Scott, for this wonderful message. Let's close with a prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Our holy God, we recognize you as the God of all knowledge. We recognize you as the God of all power. We're thankful for your love and mercy and graciousness and for revealing your mind to us. We pray, Father, that we, each of us, ministers and all, will spend time knowing you, that we can manifest your mind to others who do not know you. We ask, Father, for you to be with the Cain family. Thank you for the great work they do. Pray that you'll keep them safe as they travel back home after the lectureship. Thank you, Father, for bringing them to us, especially, Father, do we thank you for Jesus and for you sending him, that we might know you through him, and it's through him that we pray. Amen. Fantastic. Okay, I didn't leave anything up there. No, sir. No, sir. And uh, 4 o'clock, uh, got some more lessons, so let's figure out where to go. Auditorium, yes, sir. Thank you.